We're in the second week of the book of Acts. So we ask that you open your Bibles. If you need one, there's one in the pew right in front of you. And and we want you to do this because we want you to see, we want you to read with your own eyes uh, the Word of God as we're working through this. Uh, If you need help finding it, it's in the New Testament. You can see it's kind of in the back of the Bible here. Um, And you got the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And and last week we saw Jesus promise the apostles that he was going to send them the Holy Spirit. Uh, They don't know everything and what this means, but uh, that's what he told them. He told them that uh, their mission to be his witnesses, to, to take the gospel to the end of the earth. And he, he told them about that. And, and really that they should return to Jerusalem, Jerusalem and, and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so next week, then, we're going to see when the Holy Spirit actually arrives. And we'll, we'll get into that a bit. This week, though, we're going to see what they do during those 10 days of waiting. Uh, they didn't know it was going to be 10 days. It does end up being 10 days. But we're going to look at that. Uh, And and we're going to take it in two sections today. It kind of breaks down real nicely that way. Uh, First, we're going to look at Acts 1, 12 through 14, and and we'll read that here from the start. And so follow along uh, as I read that. Acts 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphas, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. God, we come to your word because it is powerful. Give us faith today to believe it and to understand it and to follow it. May you teach us always to situate ourselves not above your word, but under your word, ready to be changed, ready to submit to the best of our ability. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So now the 11 apostles travel back to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet. I always imagine this being some long giant journey, like they're on their way to Mordor or something like that. It's not. Not at all. Uh, It says right here in the text that it was a Sabbath day's journey, which means it was about two-thirds of a mile uh, is all the distance they're actually traveling. Uh, You see, the distance comes from Jewish tradition, which required uh, regarding how much or how far someone could travel on a Sabbath day without it constituting working and therefore breaking the Sabbath. Uh, To put this distance in perspective, if you were to walk out that door, uh, and begin walking to City Park, by the time you hit the edge of City Park, you've gone two-thirds of a mile. Uh, that's not very far. Uh, even those of us in the worst of shape could probably pull that off today. Uh, so the walk isn't very far, but you can imagine the conversations they're having, uh, the thoughts they're having. Uh, you know, they've just watched Jesus ascend into the sky, uh, something that they probably never dreamed they'd witness in their life. And, and here they are walking back just to go wait. And so in this first little paragraph, uh, we see three distinct characteristics of the early church, and, and these are characteristics that should char- characterize every local church body, and that I hope uh, we as a congregation desire as well. Uh, first, we see that the church is obedient to Christ. You can imagine that they may have wanted to tell people about Jesus. Uh, having seen what they just seen, now is the moment of let's get out there and tell people this is real, this is amazing, let's get started on this. Uh, they may have you know, really just wanted to at least start laying out plans and figuring out what they're going to do next. And, and, and yet, 
Uh, they listen to what Jesus had commanded them, and they go to Jerusalem to obey by simply waiting. Each day required a new instance of obedience by waiting. You can imagine, we've been here three days, let's go do something. We've been here four days, let's go do something. And each day required a new instance of obeying God. Um, this obeying God is, uh, <clears throat> by simply waiting, is a very difficult task. Uh, every generation faces their own idea of this. We no longer wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, but we do wait for God's timing in our lives. Uh, and here we see the church, uh, God's church, Christ's church, obeying Christ's command. And they wait, even though they don't fully understand why that God has asked them to do this. Uh, so one of the things we're looking for as a church is that we would be a church who rests in the grace of God, but who seeks to be obedient to Christ, our Lord. Second characteristic we see just in this short paragraph is that the church, uh, this side of the cross, shows incredible unity. They traveled back together. Okay, that part makes sense, right? That's easy. They, then they gathered in the upper room together. We see all 11 of, of the existing apostles named here together. Uh, do you notice there's another one named Judas? That poor guy. Can you imagine the rest of his life? And they start telling that story of betrayal, and he's like, not me, not me. I'm not the Judas. Um, and, and here it is. Uh, you don't see that name real often afterwards. You can imagine why they wouldn't name a child Judas after that day. Uh, some of the reasons there's not a lot of Adolfs running around today. Uh, it's true. Uh, it also... Uh, present at this time are the women. That's the way they're listed here. That would have included at least a handful of Marys. Uh, Joanna and, of course, Martha. Uh, they don't say where she is, but, but she's certainly there. Uh, we're told that Jesus' mother Mary is there. She is listed particular. Uh, and for the record, she was there waiting for the Holy Spirit coming. She was looking to Christ as her Savior, just like every other person in that room. Uh, Jesus had four half-brothers. We're told that they are all present there. You had Joseph, Judas, Simon, and James, and, and we know that uh, <clears throat> they did not believe Jesus was the Savior, the Messiah, until after the resurrection. And there they are present in this, in this gathering of believers. Uh, so not only were they physically together, but this, this text tells us that they were unified, that they were with one accord. That's a, a unique word. Eleven times in Acts, Luke's going to use this word, uh, in one accord with one accord. And, and that's because unity is a big deal. You see this all throughout the scripture, but, but unity is huge. Um, that's the one thing that gets into a church and just destroys things, disunity. Uh, and what we're seeing here is even from this early stage uh, is the fruition of what Jesus prayed for the church in John 17. There in verse 22, Jesus is praying and he says uh, to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. And here they are, coming together, living as one. See, here's the thing. We come to faith in Christ as individuals. See, the faith which, which God has given me will not save you. It can't. And the faith which God has given you cannot save me. However, God's intention for his people has always been great unity together. In fact, the, the image that we see in the New Testament over and over again is this image of body. That the church is to be one body. See, we're all different aspects of that body. You, you might be a thumb or a foot or a heart or an eye or uh, a hand. And, and they're all meant to work together. No part of your body functions without the rest of them well. Uh, the less and less parts you have, the less your body tends to work. That's science. So, <clears throat> our culture speaks about community. But in reality, we're really one of the most individualistic cultures in all of history. 
I think that mentality has gotten into the church and has really in infected us in that way. And uh, I mean, to this end, uh, just talking about the unity, R.C. Sproul tells a great story. Uh, he's telling about, talking about a minister who uh, met with a man in his congregation, a man who had stopped coming to church, uh, stopped being involved in the life of the church in so many ways. And, and the minister sits down at, at, with him, they're outside, and, and he says, why is it you're never at worship? Why are you not involved in any other aspect of the life of the church? He said, I know you're on the membership rolls. I see your name there. I remember the day you joined. I remember your baptism. I've heard you profess your faith is in Christ, and yet we never see you as part of this community. And then the man replied, I don't need the church. My faith is private. My faith is personal. I don't need the rituals of religion. I worship God, but I do it alone. I do it by myself. And they were cooking out while this was, was happening. And, and while the conversation was going on, the minister walked over to this charcoal grill where uh, stacked up was this big heaping uh, pile of, of charcoals burning white. And um, he took the tongs and, and uh, while they were waiting for burgers to cook, and he took one of those charcoal pieces and he set it aside. And then he went back and began to continue the conversation he was having. And after a few minutes, the minister pointed over to that, that piece of charcoal and he said, Ten minutes ago, that coal was white hot, but now it's cold. See, once it was removed from the support that comes from the rest of the burning coals, it, it lost its heat. It lost its capacity uh, uh, to be productive for the purpose it was created for, and it, it went cold. Uh, look around this room. Like, really, I know I'm saying that, and you're afraid to do that. Actually, look around the room and see the other people in here. It's okay if you make eye contact. It's, it's a little weird. You'll get over it. You see this congregation? You see the people in this room? Plain and simple, we need each other. We really need each other. We need the encouragement. We need the accountability. We need the, the, the counsel. We need the fellowship. And we need each other's prayers. And I didn't say you need me. I said we need each other. I need you. You know, Hannah needs Katie. And Jason needs Matt. And Audrey needs Chloe. And, and we could go on, on and on with that. Uh, we need each other. We really do. We were designed to dwell in community. That's the way God has designed it. We are each given different gifts and, and to share those gifts with each other. And when we remove ourselves from the community of believers, our, our faith is, is weakened. See, the church, just one day after the ascension of Jesus Christ, understood that they needed each other. Uh, and my prayer is that we understand that well today also. Uh, not because we all school our children the same, not because we all vote the same, not because we all look the same, but simply because we all look to the same Savior, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins. And that trumps all the other differences that we might have with each other. Unity. Now the third characteristic of the church during this time uh, of waiting was prayer. Verse 14 says, All these with one accord, what were they doing? Were devoting themselves to prayer. Not just they prayed, but they were devoted to prayer. Uh, this was a constant for them. And, and the New Testament is just saturated with commands that the church should be in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, one of the shortest verses in all of Scripture, pray continuously or ceaselessly in some translations. Uh, Colossians 4.2, continue steadfast in prayer. Uh, Philippians 4.6, we looked at that last year. <clears throat> Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, let your with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And I could give you another dozen instances where the church is called to pray. See, we do that. We do that in this service. We have the prayer of adoration. 
Uh, there's the Lord's Prayer that we pray together, the pastoral prayer, the prayer of confession, which is done both corporately and silently. Um, we do we pray before and after the sermon. Uh, at the parish groups, at the, the Durrits and the Shanahan's homes uh, uh, during the week and uh, some Sundays, we, we gather together. There's prayer requests shared and we pray for each other. <clears throat> and our hope is that you're praying for each other during the week, that it doesn't have to be something organized from top down. Um, but that means that you're actually asking each other, how can I pray for you? I know I've mentioned this before. It's easy to forget. I forget. Uh, but that call that, you know, my Lord has said I should be praying and caring for the rest of this congregation. That's all of us, which means we need to be asking each other, how can I be praying for you? Uh, <clears throat> but the truth is, even as a church, our devotion to prayer could always be better. And so I'll ask you to pray for this. Pray for us as we consider how we might be more devoted uh, committed to pray for and with each other as a church body. Uh, that we can be praying for each other, for the life of this congregation, for the city, for uh, this campus, for the army base, uh, for our country, for the world, for so many things that we can and ought to be praying for. Um, and so then, in this short paragraph, we see three things that are true of the early church that I desire would be true, or hope we all desire would be true of this covenant community as well. We, we seek to be a church who is obedient to the Lord, um, yet always resting in the mercy and the grace of, our, of God in Christ. We also seek unity among us and, and physical presence together, that we meet together, that we gather together like we're doing now, uh, and that we'd be unified in mind and, and, and our desire to, to seek the glory of the Lord, and, and also that we'd be a church that's devoted to prayer and everything. Okay, so the second section that we're going to see here, <clears throat> verses 15 to 26, <clears throat> Let's look at that. And again, I want you to follow along in your Bible. I'll read it all. It's a little extended, but uh, follow along. <clears throat> Verse 15 is where we'll pick up. <clears throat> in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The companies of persons in all was about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to, had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. <clears throat> and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that this field was called in their own language, Akodama, <clears throat> that is, field of blood. For it's written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men <clears throat> who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken us up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed, and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So quick review of how we get here. Uh, where there are only eleven uh, apostles, Jesus selected twelve men to serve as apostles. And that number paralleled the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, one of them, Judas Iscariot, uh, the other Judas definitely wants us to use his last name here, Judas Iscariot uh, betrayed Jesus to the chief priests, and as a result, they gave him 30 pieces of silver, 30 coins of silver. 
And afterwards, Judas has remorse. Uh, you can see that in him. He, he feels the weight of what he's done and, and, and for his action, but there's not repentance in his heart. Uh, and so he goes and he returns the 30 coins, throwing them back at these, uh, these Jewish leaders, and he goes off in a field and he kills himself. Uh, the Jewish leaders then take these 30 coins and they purchase a field, uh, and that's where he ends up being buried. Uh, so that's the way that we end up here. Uh, and so now there's only 11 apostles remaining. Uh, it leaves them one short from the 12 that really parallels the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and, and that really becomes a question. Well, you know, why do they need a 12th apostle at this point? Uh, Peter in our text tells us it's because um, <clears throat> one of these men must become with us a, a witness to his resurrection. And again, it puts them back at the 12 that they began with, uh, that parallel, parallel the 12 tribes. And Peter here also appeals then to the Psalms. He looks at Psalm 69.25 and, and Psalm 109.8. Uh, these were real familiar Psalms to them. They're both quoted within the New Testament often. Uh, and, and this is one of the reasons that he says we should replace Judas. Um, and yet, uh, the number of the 12 apostles does not remain. And there were other apostles added later after this. Paul becomes an apostle. You know the story. If not, you're going to learn it because we're going to get there. And on his way to Damascus, um, he encounters Jesus and becomes an apostle. Uh, Barnabas is called an apostle in chapter 14 of Acts. Jesus' brother James, who, uh, while Jesus was, was still uh, before his death and resurrection, does not believe he's even the Savior, is, is called an apostle in Galatians 1.19. But uh, this office of apostle is not a perpetual office. That means it does not continue on and on. Uh, in Acts 12, we'll see that, that James will not be replaced after he is put to death by Herod. Uh, today, people still uh, are still sent out to be a witness to the world, but there are no living apostles today, not one. That's because no one can meet the criteria to be such. What we see here is that the man who will replace Judas must meet three requirements. First, he must have been with them from the beginning. He'd seen this stuff. He'd witnessed this stuff. Second, he must have been an eyewitness of the resurrection. These are requirements, you know, particularly at this moment. Uh, we see that this man uh, is Christ's choice in verse 24, okay? We think, well, Jesus didn't necessarily choose him. But if you notice the way they pray, they say, show which one of these two you have chosen. And then it falls. Uh, today, no one can meet those requirements. Uh, however, in that room, they found at least two people. We don't know if other people were qualified for this, but they bring two people forward, and only these two are considered. And, and one of them is a man who has three names. Certainly would have made things more difficult if he were the one chosen. Joseph, who went by both Versabbos and Justice. Uh, the other guy has just one name. He's really boring, Matthias. Uh, and so they pray, and for the first time in this whole thing, I don't know if you noticed, we talk about the, how devoted to prayer they are, we never see the contents of their prayer. Uh, this is the first time we see any of their prayers. It says, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take place, take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And then they cast lots. How many of you have ever cast lots for something? One of you, all right. Uh, yeah, you can cast lots for what you're going to eat for lunch today. You could cast lots to choose your spouse. Uh, I'd recommend that for one of those, maybe, not the other. Uh, <clears throat> it's really similar to how we roll the, you know, dice. Um, you know, you, you, you might draw straws in this sense. You're trying to just figure out by uh, what seems like random, 
Uh, and in this case, we're seeing it as providentially. Typically, it worked by uh, taking some rocks. They didn't have a lot of pieces of paper, scrap paper like we have, but they would take rocks and, and they'd write the name of the two people's choice. So probably you had Justice or probably just one of his names on there. Uh, and Matthias on the other one, and you put them in a, a cup-like container, and you shake it out, and without looking, you reach in and you grab it out. And whatever name comes out was the choice. Uh, it was a way for uh, them to let the providence of God determine the outcome. And that's why Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. See, this wasn't something new that the apostles invented. It wasn't like one of them, listen, I just came from a meeting and they had this great idea, this is how they do it. Um, it was actually this ancient method by which it was, it was used. The, the priests would do this at times when they were unable to discern the will of the Lord, uh, they, would, they would cast lots. First uh, Samuel 14, the lot is cast between Saul and his son Jonathan. Uh, in Numbers 26, 55, uh, we read, But the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit it. Um, I once appealed to this, this in, in college, actually, this text. See, at uh, Texas A&M, for a short time, I was a member of a Christian fraternity. Um, <clears throat> and I, I went through their pledge week, probably a little different than the Greek system here. Uh, and on Friday, I was told, you know what? You've been accepted. You're now part of this brotherhood. Uh, and not long after, I, I learned that many of the guys that were in the pledge week were, were turned away, and I was asking, you know, why? Why were they turned away? And I wasn't, and what was the deal here? And, and as I asked questions, I learned that really they just spend this week with these people, and, and they're like, you know what? We thought you were cool, so we voted for you, and that's the way it was. And, and, and you know, that's fine for the Greek system. I have no problem with that to work that way. Uh, but a popularity vote just just seemed like a poor way for a Christian fraternity to do things. And, and, and the main reason they gave for why they did this was um, the, for the reason they voted was that they desired to remain small. So they capped their membership at just 95, guy, 95 guys, and, and they didn't want to go over that. And so uh, I was told that there's no other way to keep it small except to have a vote like this. Uh, well, lo and behold, I'm, I'm reading in Scripture, and I come across this text in Acts. Acts 1. Uh, here's a group of guys. They're, they're wanting to keep their numbers fairly small, 12. Uh, one available spot. And I suggested this to, to the fraternity guys. I said, you know, what if, what if we do this? Um, we find a group of guys, they meet your qualifications for what you want, and then we can just cast lots. And how do you think that went over? Not real good. Um, my suggestion was not taken. Uh, today, the popular vote remains the way, uh, the method by which they select their new members. Uh, my position as an alumni in this fraternity, however, does not remain. Um, that's the way that ended up. Uh, in this case, the lot falls on Matthias. And Matthias becomes the new 12th apostle. Wahoo! Right? Um, <clears throat> this great, exciting moment. They trusted in the providence of God in this. He gets selected. And this is the last time you'll ever see his name in Scripture. Not a single mention of him beyond this point. That's it. <clears throat> and so, uh, absolutely nothing else was recorded of him. But what we see in this election is that the church has an incredible trust in the sovereignty of God. Okay? Just an incredible trust that, that he's going to choose the right, that it's going to happen the way it should. And, and we see this, and at the same time, this does not mean that you should make your decisions by casting lots today. Um, if you want to do that for some really dumb stuff, by all means, go ahead. I'd love to hear the results. But it does not mean that we're supposed to do this. You see, Scripture... Nowhere else instructs us to cast lots. 
In fact, every other decision in the New Testament from this point forward is made by people evaluating the, the situation and making decisions. Elders and deacons are, are appointed or selected rather than deciding by lots. Everything, nothing else is decided by lots from this point forward. See, that fraternity that I was in is not obligated to make choices by casting lots. I probably shouldn't have insisted upon that, uh, although I still think it'd be a good method. Uh, so <clears throat> we can learn here, though. What we learn here is that we can trust God's providence in our life. To trust that every little detail of our lives is covered by God's sovereign control. See, there has never, never been anything in the history of the world where God says, well, that didn't turn out like I thought it would. Never. Take comfort in that. Real comfort in that. And so today we've seen that, that we need each other, and I really mean that. I think that's a big thing we're seeing here. We need each other, all of us. Uh, that as a church, we ought to seek to be obedient to the Word of God. I think sometimes uh, somewhere in history, the, the commands of God have been understood as the suggestions or advice of God. Um, they're not. Um, we've also seen that we ought to be unified with each other, and, and that that's exercised by the way we, we pray and we care for each other. Uh, and we've also seen in this last portion that God is sovereign, that his hand is behind the selection of a, of a man who really doesn't warrant any other reason to even mention in Scripture, and yet there God is intimately involved in this selection. Uh, those are what we're seeing in this text. We're going to stop right there, but I, I, I hope you're seeing this. Uh, and as we work through this book of Acts, we're going to see it all over the place, uh, just what a, the detail that God is involved in our lives uh, with his sovereign hand involved. Uh, let's pray. God, you make clear in your word, and our experience certainly proves that we need you. And we need each other. Uh, we need to be unified in our physical presence with each other, and we need to be unified in our prayer for each other, and, and the, in the world that you have placed us in. So God, I ask that you would give us a strong commitment to be connected to each other in this Christian community. Uh, both here on Sunday mornings and throughout the week as we care for each other. Uh, God, would you give us a, a love for each other, not just because we find similarities to each other, but because we recognize that in this room, in this community, are a bunch of sinners who look to you to be our Savior. Uh, so God, teach us to love each other as, our, as fellow heirs of your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.